Hi, welcome to our Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa community. I'm Nicolette and we're glad to have you here joining with us for today's gathering. We are in John 17 today in our Life in His Name series with a message from Pastor Char. Today we'll look at an intimate prayer between God, the Father, and Jesus. Pastor Char will break down this prayer in three parts. Jesus in his glorification, petitions for the immediate disciples, petitions for all disciples in all times and places. That's us. The ultimate message of this entire gospel that John wrote for us is that we might believe in Jesus and receive all he has done for us and have life in his name and that that life would become a river of flowing water that touches those around us. Have we made that aim in our life? God is saying, come further into my love, grow deeper into this identity and invite others into this life in God. Why are humans on earth? This is the great mystery of the world. We are made by God and for God, and each one of us will be restless until we receive the offer of this gospel to have life in the name of Jesus. Here on Sunday mornings, we are teaching through the gospel of John with this theme, life in his name. And John, as we know, gives us this purpose statement, this lens through which to engage with this gospel, and that's found in John 20, verses 30 through 31. There John writes these words, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now, as I say almost every time I teach from the Gospel of John, John makes it clear this is not a biography. This is not an exhaustive account of the life and works of Jesus, but what is recorded has been hand-picked It's been curated, so the signs, the words, the conversations, the interactions that Jesus has. John has put all of these together in a way that the reader, by walking through this story, might believe certain things about Jesus, that Jesus is God's one and only anointed king who is to rule and reign over God's kingdom, that he is God's dearly loved son, God's gift to the world. And that by believing these things, we might experience a deep, lasting quality of life, what John calls life in the name of Jesus. And so John connects in this gospel what we believe in, what we trust, and what we center our lives around to the quality of life that we experience. And so each week, each time we open up this gospel together, we are challenged with this question, do I have life in the name of Jesus? Church, we are brought back once again, have I drifted, have I lost my center, have I lost my focus, that the Christian life really is a life lived in the name of Jesus. It's a life lived in deep intimacy with Jesus. Remember, as we looked at a few weeks ago, it is about abiding in Christ, about putting deep, deep roots down into him and living out of that place. Do I have life in the name of Jesus? Or maybe another way to ask this would be, am I experiencing a kind of love, a kind of hopefulness or peace that I can recommend to others, that I want to share this? You'll never believe what I found in and through the name of Jesus, and I want to invite 
you into that? Are we experiencing that? Now, for the last weeks, we've been looking at these incredible chapters from John chapters 13 through 16. They're sometimes called the upper room discourse, and they are really Jesus' last words, his last major teaching, and it's given to specifically, we know, at least the 11 disciples are present. And I just want to remind us that all of this began with that scene where Jesus gets up from the Passover meal, and it says that he lays aside his garment, and he puts on a towel, and he begins to wash the disciples' feet. And so just imagine all that we've heard about how Jesus is going away to the Father, how he's finishing, completing his mission, about how he's going to send the Holy Spirit who will guide his disciples into the ways, works, and words of Jesus that will lead them in all truth, who will empower them to be his witnesses, how he's reminded them of the hostility that they're going to receive from the world, the opposition, but he's reminded them, abide in me, all of this is done, and the towel is still damp. And the water from the bowl is still cloudy and muddied. All of this is in this context of Jesus, the servant, the one who went low, the one who came low in order to bring his people into his own identity and his own work. That is the context of these chapters. And that really is the context for what we are looking at this morning. We've now come to what is called the high priestly prayer, where Jesus, the Son of God, before he goes to the cross, he intercedes for his disciples. He intercedes really for his people. And though it is a deep and intimate moment of prayer between Jesus and the Father, this prayer also serves as a kind of summary of the theology of John's gospel which finds its source in the love and heart of the Father sending His Son into the world to give life in His name. And now those who have received this life, that they would continue Jesus' work of making known the love of God and offering to others life in the name of Jesus. As I was you know, working through this prayer over the last few weeks, I was thinking how this prayer reminded me so much of Jesus' words that he cries out in the Gospel of Luke. There as Jesus is hanging on the cross, he says these words, Father, into your hands I commit or release my spirit. And I was thinking about how Jesus' first words in this, Father, you know, glorify your Son. Um, he talks about the completion of his work. He talks about handing over the disciples and the care of the disciples into the Father's hand. I thought, man, this prayer is this releasing prayer of Jesus. It's powerful. Jesus is committing the whole of his work in witness, the completion of his work as well as his disciples' future work and witness, into the hands of his righteous, holy, loving Father. And Jesus is absolutely confident in the character of the Father that all of this will be done, that it will be completed, just as Jesus asks. 
Now, if you're like me, when I sit down, read a passage, study a passage, if I'm preparing to teach a passage, I want to know, okay, what is the heart of this thing? I want to get like the 30,000 foot view. I was sharing with the first gathering, I taught for junior high chapel here at the school. Uh, I, don't even, I can't even remember if it was this week or if it was that week. I taught recently for junior high chapel. It's all a blur now. And I had to teach this passage in Ephesians chapter 4, uh, the second half, and the chapter's like, uh, Gentiles are darkened in their understanding. They're ignorant of the life that's in God. And I'm reading this just thinking, man, these junior hires are just going to walk away thinking, well, everyone that doesn't know God is stupid. That's what the Bible thinks. And so I'm like trying to like clear it, like, no, 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 this is not what Paul's saying. Ephesians is about how the great mystery of the world and, you know, the great meaning and purpose of humanity has been brought to light through Jesus Christ. So I'm trying to like lay it all out. This is the big idea, and here's how the pieces fit. So this is how I approach Scripture, and so this is the way it's helpful to me. So this is how we're doing it this morning, all right? So you guys tracking? We're good? So what is the heart of this prayer? There is a basic three-part structure to this prayer, and it even lines it out in your Bible, so you know, this isn't rocket science or anything like that. Uh, first, Jesus prays for himself and his glorification. He begins by praying for the Father to glorify him. And we've been following this idea throughout the Gospel of John that when Jesus speaks of being glorified, it's not the kind of glory that we often think about. John, in fact, uses this double meaning of glory. He'll use a phrase, being lifted up. And in the Gospel of John, Jesus' glory is actually the moment where he is hoisted up, dripping with blood, hoisted on the cross for all the world to see. This is the moment of Jesus' glory. Why? Why is that glorious? Because Jesus is showing the world this is the great love of God, that God would give his most precious son to rescue and redeem the world. This is the glory of God. This is who God is, is what the cross is saying to the world. And so this is Jesus' moment of glory. This is where it culminates. And yes, of course, it will be seen in the resurrection from the dead. It will be seen in his ascension to the right hand of the Father where he rules and reigns. But in the Gospel of John, Jesus' hour of glory is that declaration from the cross of who God really is. And Jesus is handing this work over into the Father's hand, saying, Father, the work is basically complete. It's done. Glorify your Son. The next part of the petition is Jesus just simply begins to pray for his disciples. You know, for chapters 13 to 16, Jesus has been talking about his identity and about his mission, and he's been, as it were, passing the baton to the disciples. But now Jesus takes all of that teaching, as it were, and he turns it into a prayer of the Father. So it's been interesting because we've been talking about how Jesus has mentioned that the Spirit will abide with disciples, but the disciples must abide in Jesus. And now this beautiful picture of how the Father will kind of orchestrate over all of this work. The Father will see this work to the end. And then the last part of the prayer is really beautiful because you and I actually make it into Jesus' prayer. Jesus prays not just for his disciples, but all who will believe through their work and through their witness. And so here in this prayer, Jesus prays for us. 
And he prays that we would be caught up in his identity, caught up in his witness, and that through our oneness in him and in the Father, that the world will know the great love of God. So that's kind of the breakdown of this prayer. But then, you know, I kind of want to know the key themes or theme of this prayer as well. So what is, what's the prayer really about? What's the heart of this prayer? Well, as I mentioned, it's this prayer of releasing the work and witness of Jesus into the Father's hands. But Jesus prays for five specific things in this prayer. First, he prays that disciples would be protected by the power of the name. Now, sometimes we read in Scripture the name. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and are saved. Anybody ever confused? Like, why do we keep talking about God's name? Like, are we just saying Yahweh is a strong tower? The righteous run into it and are saved? Well, actually, this is kind of like a hyperlink back to Exodus 34, where God reveals his name. And in biblical language, your name is really your character. It's who you are. God reveals his name nature, his character to Moses. And remember, this is in the context of uh, golden calf worshipers, that God reveals who he is. And what does he say about himself? I am the Lord, the Lord, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. So Jesus wants disciples to be protected by that name, the name that is gracious, the name that is compassionate, the name that is slow to anger, the name that is abounding in steadfast love. That is the name that we are protected under. Jesus goes on to pray that disciples would be one as he and the Father are one. We'll talk more about that in just a moment. He goes on to pray that they would have the same measure of my joy within them. This is just something that I always think about, and so I wanted to mention it in first. I didn't. I'm going to say it now. Jesus was the happiest person, the happiest human that ever lived. Do you ever think of Jesus that way? I find that most Christians don't. Do you believe this, that Jesus was the happiest person that ever lived? And look what he says here, what he prays here, that they would have the same measure of my joy within them. You know, Jesus, one of his most famous sermons that he ever gave was on joy. He says, flourishing are the peacemakers, flourishing are the meek. That is that same word, or it's connected with that same word of joy at peace at rest, shalom, all of that is caught up in that idea. So Jesus wants that for his people. He wants joy. He wants his peace to be poured out to the same measure in them that it was in him. Two more. He prays that they would be protected specifically from the evil one. And finally, that they would be sanctified. That's a church word but it just means set apart or devoted by the truth. And then Jesus just adds this clarification, your word is truth. So protection, unity, joy, and devotion are the themes of this prayer for disciples. These are the things that Jesus is praying for all disciples. He's praying for our protection. He's praying for our oneness. He's praying for deep, deep joy. 
And he's praying that we would be dedicated, dedicated, devoted to him, devoted to the Father. <clears throat> now, as I say all that, there's also a theme within these themes. If you were to look, Jesus actually prays six different times and in six different ways. Verses 11, verses 20 through 21, verse 21 again, verse 22, verse 23 and 26. He prays that disciples may be one as he and the Father are one. So even kind of as we boil this prayer down, the heart of this prayer is for the oneness and the unity of God's people. And I just need to be honest with you. When I first read this, I was like, really? Like of all the things, Jesus is on his way to the cross. He's releasing his work, his disciples, his stewardship into the hands of the Father. And this is the theme of his prayer. I just have to say, if I was doing all this, this would not be the theme of my prayer. My prayer might be, your name be honored. Your kingdom come soon. Your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. And yet the prayer of Jesus here in John 17 is all about our unity, our oneness in him and in the Father. Now, that seems a little strange maybe. And let me just clarify, Jesus isn't just praying that we would be unified. Like, okay, just be one. Make them one, right? Because we could be unified and totally wrong. We could have unity and have it around the wrong thing, right? So Jesus is not just praying for oneness and unity, peace for the sake of unity, peace, and oneness. So what is he praying for? Well, this prayer is a prayer for the work that Jesus has accomplished, to bring humanity back into the love and purposes of God, to come to full fruition. What Jesus is praying is that each one of his people, every disciple of Jesus, would enter into a life lived in the inner life of the triune God. That's what this prayer is actually about. Jesus says in John 17, 21, Listen, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world might believe that you sent me. Now, I found this really helpful. I was reading a book by a guy named Michael Gorman. It's called Abide and Go, and it's walking from John 13 all the way through the end of the gospel and looking at this theme of being rooted in Jesus and then being sent out from Jesus. And he says this, in terms of the gospel narrative, chapter 17 is the last of the lengthy discourses in John, and in many ways, it not only brings together many themes of this gospel, but also serves like the opening of the gospel as a kind of hermeneutical key to the gospel's message as a whole. What is that? He says, Jesus has come to bring God's life and to enlist others 
in the task of sharing that life with the world. What is he saying? He's saying the whole theme of the Gospel of John, which is being reiterated here in this prayer, is that you and I would be brought into this inner life of God and that we would be sent out from that place. You think about Isaiah, the prophet. There's this part in the book of Isaiah where Isaiah has this vision where he's brought into the presence, to a holy place. And maybe you've read it before. He hears the cherubim, the seraphim crying to one another, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And that's that moment where he's like, what am I doing here? I don't belong here, right? And he's like, oh no, my lips are unclean. I dwell in the midst of a people that are of unclean lips. And then a coal is taken from the altar It touches his lips, it makes them clean or whole, and then there is this question, whom shall I send, who will go for us? And Isaiah says, Lord, here I am, send me. Isaiah is brought in to the presence, has this revelation of the whole earth being filled with the glory of God, creation being filled up. And then from there, he is sent out to tell anyone and everyone of the glory of the knowledge of the Lord. This is a theme we see again and again and again in Scripture. That God wants to bring humans into his inner life, and he wants to send us out to make that life and love of God known to others. And as, I, as Michael Gorman says, this actually is seen even in the prologue of John. This prayer for us to enter and to abide in the deep inner life of the Father and Son, to experience the oneness in God, you can read this in John chapter 1. Listen, in the beginning was the Word. Remember, we talked about this months ago, but this is... Uh, the eternal creative power, the one that made everything that we know and see. That is the word, the logos. Says that he was the beginning, he was there, and the logos was with God, and the logos was God. He was with God in the beginning. And John will go on to say, okay, I'm talking about Jesus, the Son of God. He is the logos, right? So John isn't just telling us, sometimes as Christians we can flatten this and be like, The Bible is just telling us that Jesus is God. That's it. That's the message. John is actually trying to tell us something about Jesus' relationship to the Father. Not just that Jesus is divine, but he's telling us even more than that. The expression of being with God does not mean merely that Jesus was in the presence of God, that they were just kicking it together, or that they know each other, hang out sometimes, but that there existed a dynamic face-to-face interactive exchange between Jesus the Son and the Father before time ever began. And John wants us to know about this deep relationship between the Son and the Father. And he'll go on in his prologue to describe how the Son who is in the bosom at the side of, or literally leaning on the chest of the Father, has made the Father known. Now, that's a weird phrase. We do not talk about, you know, leaning on people's bosoms these days. And it's probably good, because even right now, people are like, I am uncomfortable with this word. Now, being in the bosom of, or leaning on the chest, that's what it is, right? So it's just like this, like, 
Uh, you ever have those people? Actually, um, Brian Manley, he's our care pastor. Cameron Franklin, who is our junior high pastor. These guys are, these are big dudes. And every time I hugged them, it was like that. I was just like, <laughs> you know, just like I am leaning on the chest of Cameron Franklin. Uh, and it was really comforting, uh, I have to say. But just get that picture, right? Just like uh, this picture of deep intimacy. This is what it's saying about Jesus. This is where Jesus is in relation to the Father. He's leaning on the chest of John is telling us something about the deep love and oneness that exists between God and the Son. And Jesus, all throughout this gospel, he's saying this. Do you not understand? I and my Father are one. The works that I do, these are works that the Father has done. The words that I say, this is, I'm only doing what the Father has told me to say. And sometimes we get like, what is Jesus talking about here? What he's talking about is there is such a deep oneness and unity between him and the Father that sometimes it is so hard to differentiate between the two. That is how united they are. That is how close they are. As we read on in John's gospel, Jesus speaks of himself as the one who glorifies and honors the Father. He says that the Father is the one who glorifies and honors him. And further on, Jesus speaks of the Spirit glorifying and honoring him. See, what John is describing again and again throughout this gospel is this deep oneness and unity that exists between Father, Son, and Spirit. It's an eternal dynamic of honor, paying honor to one another, dynamic of love between the three, and of glory, that this is how the eternal God has always existed. You know, John, in his letters that he wrote to a local church, we call him 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, John makes this incredible statement about God where he just tells us flat out, God is love. And he isn't telling us just something about what God does or letting us know that God is benevolent or kind or gracious. God is that. But he's saying something actually much more essential that God in his very essence and being is love, that he is the author and source of all love, that it derives from and has its basis in him. And C.S. Lewis in his uh, book, Mere Christianity, which if you haven't read it, highly recommend. We just bought it for my 13-year-old son and he's loving it. But he lays out, just kind of unpacks this idea. What does it mean that God is love? Well, he says the words God is love have no real meaning unless God contains at least two persons. Love is something that one person has for another person. So if God was a single person, then before the world was made, he was not love. God had to grow or arrive or become loving. What Christians mean then by the statement God is love is that the living dynamic activity of love has been going on in God forever. And this love has created everything else. And that, by the way, is perhaps the most important difference between Christianity and all other religions. That in Christianity, God is not a static thing, not even a person, amen, but a dynamic, pulsating activity, a life almost a kind of drama, almost, if you will not think me irreverent, a kind of dance. 
This is how Lewis came to understand this life of love, honor, and glory that exists between Father, Son, and Spirit. It's a waltz where they carry on with one another. One leads, the other follows, the other follows, the other lead, right? This is what's going on. Now, if we take all that John has described in these first verses of the gospel along with the heart of the prayer of Jesus, the picture we have is of God the Father, like the, these headwaters of a river flowing with all life, goodness, and love pouring over into the sun. The sun, who in turns pours over into the Spirit, and all together they pour out into the world. Cascading waterfalls of life pouring forth from the life that is in God. And I believe what John is trying to tell us and show us is that in the incarnation, that's when the Son of God became a human being. This is God pouring His very life, love, and goodness out into the world in order to rescue human beings, in order to bring us into the life that we were created for from the beginning. You know, we were created, this is the statement of Scripture, we were created for God. We're created by God, we're created for God, we're created to, as the catechism says, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And that term, enjoy Him forever, has this idea of friendship. To know God in a deep, intimate friendship. To enjoy Him. Jürgen Moltmann, he writes this, the divine unity, he's speaking about the triune God, is not a closed unity, but a wide, open, inviting, and integrating unity. Now, I don't know how you grew up. I don't know what the ideas about God that were put into your head from a young age, whether they were caught or whether they were taught. But I wonder, do you think of God in this way? That God is wide open? Or is God hard to find? Is He hiding from you? Is He playing a cruel joke on you? What are the ideas that you have about God? Because the picture we get from Genesis to Revelation is that God is wide open, inviting, and integrating, as Moltmann says. He goes on to say, the mutual love of the divine person overflows so as to include creatures within it. Something that occurs when the Son of God takes human beings into his own intimate relationship with his God and Father. You know, Paul the Apostle, he understood this. And in the book of Galatians, he actually writes that now in Christ Jesus, he says, we are all sons of God. And sometimes, ladies, if I'm right on this, sometimes you read that and you're like, the heck? All sons of God, not this girl, right? Like, what about me? So the phrase, though, that he's using is intentional. He's not forgetting you. He is actually saying that Jesus Christ gives you, male and female, his own status as the beloved 
firstborn son of God. Is that is what each of us have in and through Jesus Christ. He shares his identity. He shares his place in the life of God with us because God, the Father, is wide open, inviting and integrating. And from the outset of this gospel, John has made it clear that this is what his message is all about. That Jesus, as the eternal Son who existed in the loving presence of the Father, lived in that oneness from all eternity past, has come into the world to make known the Father, to reveal him in order to bring humans into this experiential knowledge and love of the Father. You know, I think you could actually walk through the Gospel of John And you can look at each sermon, you can look at each sign, you can look at each conversation that Jesus has as this work of revealing or glorifying the Father. You think about just Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus where he's like, I don't get it. How could this happen? How how does this take place that people change? And Jesus says, oh, it's only by the lifting up of the Son of Man. And this is possible because the Father has loved the world so much. He's made this possible. So what is Jesus doing to Nicodemus? Nicodemus is ignorant of God, his character, his work, and he reveals the great love of God, God's commitment to humanity. Or think about the woman at the well of Sychar. She goes there, and we find out through the story, she's thirsty, but she's got this deep, deep soul thirst. And she thinks she's the one seeking, you know, to be satisfied. And Jesus is like, no, no, no. Listen, the Father is seeking. The Father actually is seeking worshipers. So many of us think, oh, you know, I'm the one looking for God. I'm trying to figure out life. And Jesus is saying, no, no, no. The Father is looking for you. He's revealing the character of the Father. This is what this gospel is all about. You could go from page to story to sign to go through it. It is one continual revelation of the great love and goodness of God after another. And it is inviting us in to know personally, deeply, intimately this great love of God. That is the theme of this gospel. And then John does this beautiful thing, just like we talked about in Isaiah, where now those who have been brought in are sent out. Jesus says this in this prayer, as you sent me into the world, now I am sending them into the world. Jesus says this to his disciples in John 21, as the Father has sent me, that same identity and same mission, he says, now I am sending you. And that same identity and that same mission of Jesus to make known the love of the Father. So now that we have been brought into the life of God, now that the Father has been revealed to us, we who are disciples of Jesus, we take up the mission of Jesus, his identity, his work, to do just what Jesus did. Reveal the Father. Make known the great love, the kindness, the goodness, the grace of the Father to those around us. This is what Jesus' prayer here in John 17 is all about that we might experience that deep oneness 
of love and life that has eternally existed in the Father and Son, and that we would take up Jesus' mission and offer that same life and love to the world around us. We are sent in Jesus' name to reveal the goodness and glory of the Father and to invite others to experience it as well. Now, a fascinating note about this. John, who writes this gospel, he calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. And he kind of, you know, he makes some showings in his own story, which is really fun. But in chapter 12, John is actually doing exactly what he describes Jesus as doing. Remember we said that Jesus existed, the Son of God existed, leaning on the bosom of the Father. Well, we find there at the Last Supper that John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, he himself is leaning on the chest of Jesus. John is writing to us as one who lives in this oneness. He lives in the deep inner life of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. He leans on the bosom of the Son. And he writes as a personal testimony, as a personal witness, says, I live in this place, and I am inviting you to live in it as well. John is doing exactly what he is calling us to do. I love that. Now, as we finish up our study this morning, this beautiful prayer that Jesus prays for our unity within the triune God, this beautiful picture of what the church should be like, that we should be wide open, inviting and integrating because we live rooted in that deep oneness of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. It begs this question, why don't we see that? I mean, and I hate to even refer to this, but you go on social media and it's like the church is radically divided, isn't it? I just friendly fire all the time. Who's in? Who isn't in? Who really knows? Who doesn't know? I mean, it's just blah. So where is the love? If this is the main petition of this prayer in the heart of this gospel, why don't we see this unity and oneness of God's people? If Jesus, I'm assuming, is still praying this for us, after 2,000 years of praying this prayer, you kind of wonder about the, effect, the effectiveness of Jesus' prayer life, right? That's a joke, by the way. Okay, just so we're, just so we're cool. Now, I think one reason, and I think there are many in fact, but one reason for this is because of what we've already talked about with our God. God does not force his will upon anyone, but he's wide open, inviting and integrating, inviting. He invites us into fellowship with him. He invites each one of us into this place, this honored place of oneness with him and his son. And of course, then in that fellowship, in that oneness, we live out a life of obedience, a life that is in line with Father, Son, and Spirit. 
Eugene Peterson, in his book, Tell It Slant, he said this. I thought this was very insightful. He says, prayer, Jesus is praying after all, prayer takes each particular person and thing and everything that is particular about that person and thing with absolute seriousness and simultaneously preserves absolute freedom. God does not squash or override free will. He honors it. We cannot become one with another or with God apart from freedom or free will. And that is why it takes so long for these men and women for whom Jesus is praying, namely us, to become one even as they are one. Why it cannot be forced or rushed, it is why no matter how many are shaped by Jesus' prayers into this Trinitarian unity, the unity itself is always in process as new followers enter the shaping process in which there are no shortcuts. Some of you are like, amen. No assembly line efficiencies permitted, he says. Automobiles may be made that way, but not saints. The work of sanctification, another word for this becoming one, even as we are one, is never a finished product that any single congregation can test drive and, if satisfied, sign up for. The unity is not a model to be copied. It is a Trinitarian relationship. Father, Son, Holy Spirit of reciprocity to be entered. See, the issue with the lack of oneness and unity within God's church, it does not lie with Jesus and the effectiveness of his prayer. We are one in Jesus. This is the place that he has given us. We see this in the book of Acts, right? The Holy Spirit comes and there is one fire that is divided, unifying 16 different languages coming together, one church, one people. The question is, will we live it? Will we live it out? The issue lies with us, really, in whether we believe that this is the goal and purpose of all humanity. Is this really it? Is this the goal of God's people? To live before the face of God. To, like David said, one thing I ask and that I will seek, to see your beauty that I might dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord, to inquire in his temple. David understood that this was it. And all of this has come to culmination, to fruition, through the work of Jesus Christ. He has made it possible that we can now live in the oneness of the Father and Son, we can know ourselves as dearly loved children of God. And now we can live out that identity to the world around us, inviting them in. Will we live like it? That is the question. Jesus says, as we live into this reality and live out that oneness, then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Wow. You know, I wonder sometimes if 
the greatest issue in the world today, the greatest issue of humanity, is the character assassination of the Father. Even from the garden, remember the words of the serpent there, twisting the word of God, bringing doubt and suspicion into the goodness of God. Oh, God knows the day that you eat of it, you will be like him, being wise, able to discern good from evil. The serpent is there twisting, bringing suspicion and separation. Does God love us? Are his intentions good? Can we trust him? And that lie has lived on in every single human heart from then until now. And unfortunately, many of us have had parents who have not made known the love of the Father to us. Instead, they have used us for their own benefit, their own satisfaction, their own emptiness and void that they feel. And they have not made known to us this self-giving, honor-giving, glory-giving, great love of God. And I do wonder, like Jesus says, if this is truly the great need of the world, that the church would live into this identity. Brendan Manning said this, and I just, I can't get over this. He says, define yourself radically as one beloved by God. Do you dare? This is the true self. Every other identity is illusion. Do you believe that? That God loves you as you are. It doesn't mean that God approves of your selfishness, of your you know, sinful habits. It doesn't mean that. But that He does love you as you are. He even accepts you as you are. He receives you as you are. That in and through Jesus Christ, you are a beloved child of God. Will you dare to define yourself, as he says, radically define yourself that way. Because this is the great need of all humans. And this is the great need of the world around us. They are separated from the life and the love that is in God. That is the great question at hand. Church, will we live into this identity? Will we live into our oneness? Will we receive the finished work of Jesus and live deep into the inner life of God and then live out from that life inviting any and all who are around us to come and experience the great, great love of God. That is the invitation to you. You know this? Great. In the words of C.S. Lewis, come further up and further in. Define yourself more radically, day after day. Go deeper and deeper into that identity as a beloved child of God. And share it with anyone 
in everyone around you. Offer to those around you life in the name of Jesus. Now, this morning, we have this incredible opportunity, as we do every week, to come to this table. And in these very down-to-earth symbols of cracker and juice, bread and wine, to be reminded of God's great love for us, but to be reminded, too, of how personable God desires to be with us. As acquainted as we are with food and drink, that we regularly take, eat, and drink in order to live, that we would feast on Him. Bread and wine. The bread representing His body that has been broken for us. His blood representing the shed blood that cleanses us from all sin. The blood, it says, that kicked off the new covenant. Will we come and take up in our own physical bodies that life in the name of Jesus? And then will we go from here with that in our veins, sharing it with anyone and everyone around us? Church, come, eat, drink, and be filled. And if you're here today and you do not know Jesus, guess what? This offer is for you as well. Everything I have been saying, God is wide open, inviting and integrating. Revelation says this, the Spirit and the bride, the church, say, come. Come and drink of the water of life freely. So if you're thirsty, you're hungry, you're looking for satisfaction, you were made by God, you were made for God, come to this table, meet with Jesus, and experience his deep, satisfying life that he offers you. Our prayer team will be up here, and they want to pray for you, they want to minister to you. May God bless you.